Hey there, Hope Covenant podcasters. I am going to be doing a redo of Sunday's sermon. Our recording magically disappeared, so I had a handful of folks ask me to do this uh, since they wanted to share it with some other folks uh, and some others that wanted to listen for their, their small groups this week. So here we go. I'm going to imagine that I am up in front of all y'all again. And then I need you guys to play along and imagine that you're actually laughing at any attempts at humor that I make uh, and maybe just throwing in a boisterous amen here or there. So, all right, here we go. Um, Just a quick recap. We are in the second to our last week in our Family Matters series, a series that we started and looked at the church as a family, but then we looked at relationships. And when we started the series, I had an intention for us to look at uh, marriages, parenting, and instead we kind of took some different turns in the series, uh, which will allow us to address some of those issues again in the future. In fact, when I started this talk on women and men, I thought for Mother's Day, uh, obviously it'd be an appropriate uh, subject, But as I began to write it out and unpack it, uh, all the things I'd been reading and studying, it became obvious that it was going to take two, if not three weeks, to really cover some of the crucial things I wanted to cover, and we're still not going to cover everything. So we are going to recap real quick. Uh, I would encourage you just to go back and listen to the podcast if you missed it from last week. But we started out last week talking about God's intention for women and men in the beginning, and we looked at Genesis And we looked at Adam and Eve. We looked at how Adam was alone. And Genesis says that God said, I will create for him a helper. It's not good that man be alone. I will create for him a helper. And the helper word was translated from the Hebrew word azer. And azer actually translated everywhere else in the Old Testament refers to God. uh, And in fact, refers to God in a rescuing operation. So a more accurate description of God creating a helper was that God created for Adam someone to come alongside as an equal, a lifesaver by his side. And then we read on um, in Genesis, it also says that God gave both man and woman the creation mandate to rule and steward this planet earth that he gave to us, not just to men, but to men and women. And then we looked, of course, at the fall. At the fall, Adam and Eve sinned, and the curse was a consequence of their sin. And part of the curse to Eve, to uh, women, uh, was that God said, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I didn't get a chance to really unpack that much, um, but A quick explanation on that. Your desire will be for your husband. Now, um, unfortunately, fellas, that does not mean that your wife is going to just want you and desire you all the time. Uh, That wouldn't be a curse probably at all. Uh, But the desire word there is actually a desire to control, um, a desire to manipulate, Uh, is another way to translate that word. Uh, And he will, in turn, then rule over you. So the battle of the sexes has begun for control and domination rather than mutual love and um, stewarding of the creation and of relationships. That that curse affects and impacts how men and women will relate to each other. But I wanted to remind us, and I'll remind us again, that 
was the curse. That was not God's original design. And when Jesus comes, part of what he came for is to reverse the curse, to restore us to his original intent. And we didn't get a chance to really look through the Old Testament, but through the Old Testament, there are are, are grace notes. There there are women leaders throughout the Old Testament in in a world that it was very difficult in that ancient world um, to be a woman. And yet there are women in the story that stand out and lead. And part of what I noticed with that was to say, hey, by the way, the curse was between husbands and wives. It didn't say that men will rule over all women, that men will always be in charge and be the authority and be the boss. No, that was, first of all, it's the curse. Second of all, that's a husbands and wife deal. It didn't say anything about all women will be subject to the authority of all men. Uh, not, Not at all. And so we look at leaders, women leaders, uh, prophetesses, um, all through the Old Testament. But again, that world was a very difficult place for women. Now when we get a little closer to what we're talking about this morning, which is going to be uh, women and men and Jesus, um, I want us to think about when we get to the New Testament. Because when we get to the New Testament, there's a huge shift in what I uh, talk about for the rest of this message is about Jesus and women. And the first thing that I want us to notice is that Jesus is quite unique among the rabbis of his day in his treatment of women. Back then in Jesus' day, in that culture, in that time, a devout rabbi wouldn't even talk to a woman. In fact, there was a certain group of rabbis, and I promise I'm not making this up, uh, and they were called the bruised and bleeding rabbis, right? The bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And they believed that to even look at a woman would lead a man astray. It would cause him to sin. So they decided to walk around all the time with their eyes either down to the ground or they would close their eyes if they thought there was a woman in their peripheral vision so they wouldn't you know, accidentally see her. And so these guys were forever bumping into buildings and, and tripping over things. And thus they were called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. And that's a true story. But um, between the Old Testament time and the New Testament, there were what are often referred to as 400 years of silence. So between the end of the Old Testament, um, which some people, I mean, the book we have is Malachi, uh, up to Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, there were 400 years. There was 400 years. And in those years of silence, Uh, Religious leaders called scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees began to reinterpret the Old Testament. And what they did was add their traditions, they added their laws, they added their opinions to the Jewish scriptures, what we refer to as the Torah. The Torah being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the first five books, that's the Torah. And they added to that. And what they wound up with ultimately became known as Judaism. Now, some of us hadn't heard this taught ever, and for a very long time, I I just assumed that Judaism was the same word as the Old Testament Jewish religion based off of the Law of Moses, but that's uh, actually not true. I mean, you ever think about it, you wonder why we get to the New Testament, and we've got Pharisees and Sadducees, and the Pharisees and Sadducees, we don't hear of them until the New Testament, um, because they weren't in the Old Testament times. And the scribes, they were in the Old Testament, but they end up with a very different role in the New Testament than they had in the Old Testament. 
So, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, they were the leaders in developing the religion that came out of the law of Moses and developed what came to be known as Judaism. So, for example, if you took all the laws of the Old Testament, everything from the law of Moses, also called the Mosaic law, there were 252 laws. When Judaism was developed, it expanded from the 252 laws given in the Law of Moses up to 613 laws, more than double. Now, Pharisees were very harsh toward women, and get this, of those 613 laws that were developed, nearly 100 of those laws were written against women. So so imagine this. By the time Jesus comes on the scene in this part of the world, this culture is a very hard place for women. It's a very hard place to be a woman. And in first century Israel, no people group was more oppressed than women. They had virtually no rights, no respect, no voice. Essentially, they were the property of men. They were allowed little or no formal education. So if a family had young boys and girls, the boys would go off to school while the girls stayed home with their mother. To me, first century Judaism sounds similar to recent Afghanistan under the Taliban, right? See, back then, Jewish women were forbidden to speak to men in public. They were required to veil their faces whenever they left their homes. And if a woman was caught unveiled in public, it was grounds for divorce, So women were the housekeepers. They cared for the children. They served at the whims of their husbands. And if a male guest came over to the home for dinner, the women were supposed to eat in another room. In that culture, back in that time, fathers arranged most marriages. So really, I think the best a woman could hope for was somebody who would treat them better than her father did. Back then, polygamy was legal for men, not for women. So if that happened, women would share their husbands with other wives. And like I spoke about a few weeks ago, if their husband got tired of them for any reason, he could divorce her. Jewish women also could not vote and had no political influence. A woman could not even be a witness in a court case. See, Judaism was stricter than the Old Testament Mosaic law with respect to women. In fact, um, women were relegated to the outer court of the synagogue, to the fourth level. There were four levels uh, closer and closer to the center of the synagogue. Women could only be on that fourth level. And most often they were not even allowed to read the scripture, the Torah. Most rabbis generally held women to be significantly inferior One first century rabbi named Eleazar said, rather should the words of the Torah, which are the scriptures, rather should they be burned than entrusted or taught to a woman. And then he added, whoever teaches his daughter the Torah is like one who teaches her lasciviousness. I mean, wow, wow. See, his comments depict much of the religious community's attitude towards women at that time. There was an ancient prayer that's found in several places, several texts, and and is still recited by some Orthodox Jews. The prayer was this, Blessed art thou, O God, who did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So when we understand the Jewish culture, 
and how oppressive it was towards women, like no contact between men and women, no teaching of women, no touching of women outside of your family, no talking to women in public. And then we read the Gospels and the stories of Jesus. It sheds a whole new light on things, doesn't it? I mean, with that backdrop of what the culture was like, and then we read the stories in the Gospels, we see how revolutionary Jesus' attitude towards women is. So when Jesus begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he's in the synagogue, he unrolls the scriptures to the place that we would call Isaiah 61, and he reads from there to announce his mission. Verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. (laughs) Jesus says here, the oppressed will be set free. And who who were the most oppressed people in the land? (laughs) Women. Women. So let me just run through a a few of Jesus' interactions with women. Actually, I spent a lot of time kind of on the first one. And after I got done uh, writing through that, I realized I couldn't give that much detail for all of these stories that I'm going to hit on. Um, So the first one will be a little more detailed, and then we'll just touch on a few others. But um, the first one that I want to look at here, Jesus' interaction with women, is, is in John chapter 4 where we see Jesus. He is tired. He's thirsty from a long day's journey. He's sitting at the edge of a well in the hot noonday sun with no way to draw water from the deep spring. His disciples have gone to town to get some lunch, so Jesus is all alone, (laughs) but not for long. A Samaritan woman shows up with a bucket. And by the way, she shows up in the heat of the day, unlike everyone else. And she does it to avoid the so-called decent women of her village. She'd rather bear the scorching sun than their scorching treatment of her. And so Jesus says to this Samaritan woman, "Uh, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman says back to Jesus, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Now, I'm sure here Jesus is listening to this lady. She's being a little sarcastic here because she knew very well that the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans and that Jews looked down their noses at both Samaritans and women. See, Samaritans were seen as half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, so they were despised even more. This woman was a Samaritan and a woman, so she's obviously both. And the Jewish people in that day had a deep-rooted prejudice and racism against her people, and her sex. So Jesus, verse 10, answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, let's just stop and think here. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What is really happening? Like, step back again in time. And all the way back to this first century in this culture, Jesus a rabbi, a respected teacher, is offering a woman, and a Samaritan woman at that, living water. And remember, in that culture, men do not talk to women. Women are seen as possessions. They're not taught. They're not 
valued. They're not celebrated. Their, their heads have to be covered, and they are definitely not seen as spiritual or spiritually aware. Verse 11, the woman says to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? See, the lady here, she's very perceptive. When she meets Jesus just a few minutes earlier, she emphasizes to him that she, that he was a Jew and, and she was a Samaritan, but suddenly the tables have turned. The thirsty man is actually honoring her, speaking to her, paying attention to her. He's treating her as though she's a person. So it looks to me like she's kind of rushing to find some common ground to talk with him. And, and even though she's called a half-breed, she claims Jacob as her father, Old Testament, Genesis-era Jacob, ancestor. She does. She knows how to make a connection with a Jewish man, so she looks for those common roots. And in verse 13, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never thirst But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman replies, Sir, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. Like we can see this woman is is hunger and Jesus is eager to give her a river of life. But the story now in this part gets a little sticky. Because Jesus is about to uncover a painful cycle of dysfunction in her life. And so when he does, she has a choice to make. Is she going to lie? Is she going to cover up the fact that she is relationally broken and and seen as sexually immoral? Is she going to lie and cover that up now that this man has shown her respect and dignity? Or will she instead, will she trust Jesus enough with her heart? to let him stir her wounded heart and, and touch decades of abandonment and divorce and betrayal. Well, she, she chooses the second one. She chooses honesty. And Jesus, it says here that he said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had Five husbands, and the one to whom you are now with is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She kind of changes the subject quick here. She says, Our fathers were worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. See, so pause in the story for a moment here. On his part here, what Jesus does is he shows her some respect in the middle of her brokenness. And then he compliments her for being honest. And again, from the teaching a few weeks ago, remember, in that culture, this means five men have walked away from and abandoned her, right? Women couldn't divorce, so she was the one abandoned. And there had to be a ton of pain in her heart over this. So yeah, she may have a messed up personal life, but she also has a deep hunger for the things of God. I mean, think about it. In a culture back then that refused to educate women, this Samaritan woman is well-read. She obviously somehow knew the scriptures. You know, her, her story reminds me of so many people that I've met throughout life. Like when you view 
their stories from a distance, like in her case with five husbands and, a, and now she's living with her boyfriend. But you, you look from afar and go, wow, they probably don't have a lot of interest in God whatsoever. And, and so religious people, sadly, in the church often, religious people often write those kind of people off and speak judgmentally about them and, and use their stories to illustrate you know, so-called sinful living. But, but underneath years of dysfunction and a mountain of pain in many of these people, just like in this Samaritan woman, there's a hungry heart. There's, there's a desire to know God. And I don't have time to really go into the next part of the story, but it's actually pretty amazing. Read this sometime and look at it. But the, the, the most profound teaching on worship ever um, is taught right there to a Samaritan woman who's living with her boyfriend. Jesus' reply here, right? <laughs> and uh, five husbands and one boyfriend later, the woman was still looking for the Messiah. She was still looking for the one who would release the oppressed and set the captives free. And so in verse 25, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus answers her, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> whoa, 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 wait, wait, did you catch that? Like, I didn't learn this until this last week while I was preparing this message. Jesus, right here, revealed himself personally as the Messiah for the first time in recorded history. That's the first place he does it. Reveals himself as the Messiah, and it was to a Samaritan who was a woman. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. Now, verse 27, it says, Just then his disciples returned, and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. And yet, as shocked as they are that he's talking to a Samaritan who is a woman, they're not going to confront him about his, you know, supposedly inappropriate behavior because Jesus has a way of making them look kind of, you know, like idiots when, when they try to do stuff like that. But, but, but stop here for a second again. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman. So why were they surprised by that? Well, like we've talked about, rabbis did not do that in Jesus' day. It just wasn't done. But Jesus did. And he didn't just talk to her. He engaged her in an actual theological discussion about life and, and worship. And now get this. She becomes his evangelist to the whole town in Samaria that she lives in. I mean, whoa. I mean, think, again, think about this. A Samaritan a woman who has been married five times and is now living with her boyfriend, whom the religious world would not even allow to step foot in the synagogue, she just became the first evangelist in history. Like she goes into her town and gets everybody and they come out and hear Jesus. And they believe in Jesus. Like, she's the evangelist, right? This woman who couldn't qualify as, a, as an elder in anyone's church, she just turned a Samaritan city upside down after one encounter with Jesus. Chris Vallotton says about this, I'm telling you that disqualifying women from leadership is costing us in, in reaching our cities. 
Like some people would think she wasn't a leader. Man, they may be right, he says. She didn't have some sort of title, but the fact is she led people and they followed her to Christ. Not only were those Samaritan people from her village following this woman, they also learned about Jesus from her. She then taught people that Jesus was the Messiah. So if, if you're somebody that's a little familiar with Scripture, you might think of Paul's words in 1 Timothy 2.12, where he says, I do not allow a woman to teach, which some people think need to be universally applied all over the place to all women in all times and all places. Um, other people, like myself, uh, believe that that was about a specific instance in that time and culture dealing with a situation. So here's the deal, though. If you try to universally apply that I don't allow a woman to teach deal to everybody in every place at every time, well, then many Samaritans would not have found Christ because she was teaching them. You know, it's, it's some people, they just argue about whether or not a woman should carry the title of leader, elder, apostle, pastor. But let's just stop and be real about this. Like, we use the word director in a lot of churches instead of pastor, even though they're doing the same thing as people that are pastoring. But it's a woman, so we're going to call her a director. Listen, here's the deal. True leaders are acknowledged by titles. They're not created by a title, right? For example, calling people elders, that doesn't make them an elder any more than calling people engineers makes them engineers. Like Chris Vallotton says, a builder is someone who builds. A skydiver is someone who jumps out of a plane with a parachute. A dancer is someone who dances. A pastor is someone who pastors. A leader is someone whom people follow. And a teacher is someone whom people learn from. And I think he's right, because people can choose to redefine or call these spiritual roles in order to, you know, protect their interpretations of Scripture. Oh, we'll call him a director. We'll call him whatever. Okay, but I just think doing that refuses to acknowledge that, that when a man is learning from a woman, she is teaching him. Okay? And when people follow a woman, she is leading them. Period. Okay, so that little side trail there, and I, I do plan to unpack some of those New Testament scriptures next week um, and not just skate by them. So back here to Jesus. Um, and let's move from this story uh, of the Samaritan woman at the well, because Jesus didn't just speak to women. Um, he actually allowed women to touch him. And that was a huge no-no, like we talked about in this culture. It was a huge not okay thing to do, especially for a respected rabbi or a teacher like Jesus. Maybe you uh, have read the story, and we did a message about this last fall, about uh, what's called the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. So look it up uh, this week and, and read it. Um, and when you read it, like read through that story and imagine the scandal, right? Because what happens is this woman, who was known as the town harlot, finds out Jesus is at a, a dinner at the respected Pharisee Simon's home, and she crashes the party, <laughs> She comes in, and when she notices that Jesus was not honored or greeted well, that, that they didn't bother to wash his feet, which was customary in the time, instead she wets his feet with her tears, and then she lets her hair down. Scandalous, 
right? To do that publicly? It was illegal, but she lets her hair down and dries his feet with her hair. And Jesus received it, and he loved her like a sister. And he told her that her sins were forgiven. He spoke to her (laughs) right in front of Pharisees, in front of these respected religious folks. He speaks, forgives her sins. He commends her for her faith, and he makes her the hero of the scene right in front of the Pharisees and other religious folks. So Jesus did more than talk. He shows in action. Or about how he modeled his life. Check a look at, uh, take a look at Luke chapter 8. You can start in verse 1. Um, the verse here says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, so his disciples, the twelve were with him, and also some women. I mean, just stop for a second here. Notice this. He's traveling from town to town in his ministry. It says the 12, his disciples were there, and also some women, continue reading, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom the seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, think about this. In the 20th century, we kind of read this and we just skip over these words. But do you have any idea? We have no idea how unprecedented this was in Jesus' day. To have a rabbi traveling with a group of women and men going together, relating to one another as brothers and sisters, absolutely unheard of. And... It adds the detail, women were the ones helping to bankroll this mission. These women were helping to support them, it says, out of their own means. And Jesus not only apparently did not find that demeaning, he welcomed it. And again, put this in context of the first century Jewish culture, and it sends a strong, strong message. Now, if you're following along in your Bibles, uh, flip over a page or two to Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And before we get there, I want to give us a little context about this phrase that we're going to see in a minute. It's a phrase that has to do with being at someone's feet. We see that phrase also in Acts 22, verse 3, where the Apostle Paul, he's talking about his life story. And he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Sorry. (laughs) Um, even when I'm recording, I'm not going to stop and correct that. All right, here we go. Uh, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, educated strictly according to our ancestral law. So here we go. To be at the feet of someone, quote unquote, was a technical term for being a rabbi's disciple. It was a way of saying, you know, I was Gamaliel's graduate student. I was his disciple. Uh, One other thing to note here, there was no historical record of any other rabbi in Jesus' day having a female disciple. None. Zero. Okay. Now, now let's go to Luke 10, 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who did what? Who sat at the Lord's feet 
listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, Martha. Yeah. Uh, The Lord answered, you are worried and upset by many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, very often in our day, we read this story and we make it about, you know, having a Mary temperament or a Martha temperament. You know, it's about being busy or not being busy, you know, something like that. And by the way, that's fine, right? This story can be a good reminder not to be so busy serving all the time that we actually miss spending time with Jesus. Like we skip the spending time with Jesus because we're just too busy serving Jesus, serving people in the name of Jesus, right? But, but friends, and again, that's fine to read it that way. But, but friends, that is not how it would have been read by a first century reader. Any reader in the first century would expect that Jesus, well, he's going to agree with Martha. He's going to tell Mary to get busy. For Mary to, you know, do what women are expected to do in that culture, to be a good hostess. See, the amazing point of the story is that the woman who is commended is not the one who plays the role of hostess. The woman who is commended is the one who became a student, a disciple of the rabbi, and sat at his feet and learned from him. Jesus says that will not be taken away from her. You know, I just see this and I think, you know, any, any of you with daughters here, right? Look at their gifts. You look at their minds, at, at what they're going to contribute to our world. And aren't you grateful to serve a Savior who had the boldness to say, hey, it's a new day for women. I want women as well as men to sit at my feet, to learn from me and to serve me. And I, for one, I'm, I'm so grateful that Jesus cherishes the gifts of my wife and her daughter and my sisters and my mother. And he cherishes them just as seriously and as deeply as he cherishes the gifts of myself and our sons. See, Jesus invites all of us to be his disciples. He invites all of us to follow him, spend time with him, to sit at his feet, to learn from him. And listen, that would have been hard for the male disciples of Jesus to comprehend that women were capable disciples, that what women can be followers of Jesus. And if they would have resisted that new way of thinking, um, because it's easy to follow back into old patterns and, you know, after Jesus left planet Earth, uh, maybe to revert back to what the rest of the culture was doing and insisting on. And, but, and if they were tempted to do that, I tell you what, it would not have taken long for the men to simply look at the differences between the men and the women during Holy Week, right? <laughs> between um, Palm Sunday and Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. See, because women continued to play a crucial role in Jesus' life right up to the end. And that's what I want to look at here to wrap up. I mean, like, just if we want to be honest about the male-female thing, we have to acknowledge, hey, it was men who put Jesus on the cross. Not a single female was involved in the crucifixion. As a matter of fact, Pilate's wife, tried to talk her husband out of crucifying Jesus. And once men put Jesus on the cross, 
while 10 of the disciples were huddled up in a house trying to save themselves from suffering the, the same fate. Remember, that was, that was part of the strategy of crucifixion, intimidation. Hey, this will happen to you if you don't go hide, run, whatever. So they're all hiding, um, but it was three women. And let's be fair, John, right? Jesus' disciple John was there too with three courageous women. It was them who stayed at the cross to comfort Christ in the dark night of his soul as Jesus was dying this agonizing death. And although, although Jesus had been telling his disciples for months that this was all going to happen, that, that he would be crucified and he would rise on the third day, Jesus had been telling them that for months. But it was only the two women who visited the tomb to actually check out the story, right? And in Matthew 28, we're told that women, they served as the first witnesses to the climactic act of Jesus' ministry, his, his resurrection. Right after Jesus gets laid in the tomb, the women are the ones that go visit. Then the women found the tomb empty, and they encountered really excited angels. So they ran back to the village to tell the cowering hiding, fearful men, hey, listen, guys, the stone was rolled away and Jesus is gone. Now, basically, the men hear this story from the women and they're like, ah, fake news, right? And you got to wonder, like, did the women say, seriously, fellas, wait, wait, Jesus told us this was going to happen. Weren't you listening? But their testimony was basically ignored. In fact, it says only Peter and John even bothered to see if there was any truth to their story, and the rest of the apostles refused to believe. And then remember, it was Mary Magdalene who first encountered the risen Christ, and she was the only person who touched Jesus before his ascension. It was Christ who instructed her, to go tell his disciples that he had risen. Send the woman messenger to tell them I'm alive. <laughs> and again, this is really significant to the first century readers because in those days, women were not allowed to serve as witnesses in legal proceedings. Like if somebody committed murder, it could be watched by 100 women. But if no man saw it happen, the murderer would get off scot-free because women had no legal status as witnesses. In fact, one of the marks of the authenticity of the resurrection, um, historians that study these kinds of things say that one of the reasons that they say we can trust these accounts of the resurrection, that it actually did happen, is because nobody in the first century would have made up a story where women were the witnesses. Like, they weren't allowed to be witnesses in that culture. So it would never be in there if it hadn't actually happened that way. Like, if Christians were trying to fake the news of the resurrection, if it was a scam, they would never have admitted that women were the first eyewitnesses. <laughs> but they are. They're the witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. And then he shows himself to many, many more. So see, see, in Jesus, we see a new day for women. 
And next week, my plan is, I haven't written it yet, but my plan is to see how it played out in the early church and look at some of the difficult passages, some of the ones that people struggle with on this issue that seem to restrict women from certain roles. And again, I'm not saying it's an easy issue. It's a complex one. It's going to be awfully hard to pull this off in one message. I'm going to give us our best overview just to give us some things to think about. But I want to wrap up with with, uh, this thought. See, the world that Jesus died for is one that empowers women. That's the reality, to empower women. I mean, you think about the world around us. Women are allowed to be doctors, mothers, astronauts, scientists, neurosurgeons, astrophysicists, teachers, sports analysts, athletes, firemen, police officers, soldiers, sailors, generals, entrepreneurs, detectives, artists, dancers, missionaries, and so much more is what women can be in our world. See, women can defend countries, start businesses, fight crime, create technology, rescue lives, put out fires, and raise children. The Bible itself acknowledges women as queens, prophets, judges, teachers, mothers, leaders, apostles, co-heirs, counselors, warriors, children of God, and so much more. So for me, when I, when I look at the, the church, the capital C church, not our church, but all the churches around, the, the, the church um, that Jesus is the head of, it's really confusing that, that in many of those churches, most of those churches, it seems like women are not considered qualified to talk, to teach, to shepherd, to pastor or to even help lead a congregation of 30 people. Like, oh, nope, they can't do it. They're women. And I just think there's something wrong with this picture. So, so, so this whole message has been about not like just what's right and wrong. This is about what Scripture is teaching and says, and we'll get to more of it next week. But, but I think it's time that we got this right. Like as the church, the capital C church, as brothers and sisters around the world, I think it's embarrassing that women in the world are more powerful than our sisters in most churches. See, I can't imagine like what it must feel like for a woman who might be the CEO of a large corporation to show up at a church where women are restricted and treated like a second-class citizen. Like, I think it's also hard to fathom what a woman who's the mother of several children and the wife of an empowering husband must think when she goes to most churches for the first time. It would be awfully confusing. See, I can tell you one thing. Like, I believe that if Jesus had the opportunity to actually lead his church, women would be powerful. Jesus refused to let the religious leaders of his day oppress women. And I think it's about time that we became Christ-like in this area today. Now, I'm so proud of Hope Covenant. I'm proud of our tribe, our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. I'm proud of the way women are encouraged and empowered as full partners in ministry, that they are not restricted from any role. And I believe that in our tribe here, we've made a lot of progress, but I also know that we have a long ways to go, but I think we're headed in the right direction on this particular issue. By the way, it's one of the main reasons I joined this denomination, and I believe that we in the covenant and here at Hope, can help lead the way in seeing this barrier broken all over the church world. And by the way, when we do that, I think it will make a difference. When the rest of the world sees the way that we, the the capital C church, the way the church empowers and encourages our women. Because honestly, 
in this world that we live in, with all the brokenness around us, with all the things that we are called to bring life and hope to, all the things that need to be restored, that we are allowed and invited to partner with God in bringing restoration to the world around us, friends, we're going to need all of us. We're going to need both men and women. See, we live in a world where, where darkness attacks relentlessly. We live in a world where evil steals, kills, and destroys. And for us, the people of God, to bring God's love and redemption, we will need all of us to be in the game. You know, sometimes I wonder if one of the reasons that, that, that the church around the world struggles to maintain momentum I wonder if maybe it's because half our population is restricted. Because if that's the case, then we're missing half our pastors, half of our apostles, half our prophets, half our teachers, half our elders. But friends, in the kingdom that Jesus brought, everybody gets to play, right? Everybody's needed. And so maybe your life, your story, is that, you, um, that you're a man, and you thought, well, hey, it's just what the Bible says. And that's what most people do. So, hey, women just take their place and guys lead and just get over it. You know, I'm just asking you, men, with a spirit of humility, would you just be open? Would you just be open to continue to look at the scripture and look at the heart of God and wonder if maybe those restrictions that are being placed are something that we need to be addressing, that we need to be um, repenting of? Because I, I think um, we really need to lead the way on this stuff. I think we need to, to get moving on this stuff. And I believe that we can do that here at Hope. And I think when men help to clear the way and make the way, it sends a message both to the women who've been restricted and to other men who need to get on board that this is important. And maybe you're here today, maybe you look at your life and, and you're a woman who has been told, no, you can't do that because, well, you're a woman. And you know there is something that you're created to do, that, that there's something you're passionate about doing, there's something you are wired to do. And sometimes women that are told, no, they can't do those things, they feel like there's something wrong with their being, with their personhood. There's something wrong with them for even wanting to do that. Well, I want this word to be to you an encouragement and, and a move towards healing. And so in the service, I had all our women stand up and, and I had the husbands uh, or family members, you know, put a ar- hand on their arm or shoulder. I had all the other men just reach out towards the women and we prayed a prayer and I'll pray a different prayer in this, but uh, go in the same way in the spirit of where we're at as you're listening on the podcasts. And the prayer is this. Father, will you bring healing to the hearts of all of us, to the men who, for one reason or another, have restricted women, some out of good intentions, but others maybe out of having been wounded or had harmful situations in their history. And Lord, will you bring healing to our sisters? Will you bring them your hope, your love, your encouragement? Will you show them that you are for them, you are not against them, Will you release them and bless them into all that you have wired and called them to be? And may Hope Covenant be a place where we encourage and empower the women that you have placed in this community 
to full lives, equal participation in every area of the church. And may we be an example to the churches and the people around us of what a loving, biblically sound, freedom-fulfilling church community looks like. In Jesus' name, amen.